Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting January 2nd, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This is the 100th episode of Science Talk, but Scientific American magazine is way older, and it has some fascinating stuff in its closet, which we'll take a look at. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. If you're a frequent listener, you've heard Editor-in-Chief John Rennie on the program every once in a while. He recently addressed the inaugural meeting of the New York Skeptic Society, and I came along and recorded his talk. The first 15 minutes or so were devoted to a review of a couple of cases from way back in the magazine's history when we got directly involved in debunking or attempting to debunk some quackery and some fakery. Here's John Rennie. I'm talking today about Scientific American, a century and a half of skepticism. Um, even that's slightly undervaluing it. Um, Scientific American has been around since August 28th of 1845. It was, uh, it was just four pages long for big newspaper-like pages. It had lots of uh, old patent announcements and it had poetry, and it had uh, little reports on science, and all kinds of things about that. And uh, these days, it actually looks, you know, more more like this, and has a picture of me in it, which means it's not actually gotten any better during that time. So, <laughs> it's all sort of neutralized itself. Uh, but, uh, so, you know, having been around since 1845, this is a very long time, obviously. This is around since basically about the beginning of the Second Industrial Revolution. This is before the Civil War. This is so early that we know that, that Thomas Edison read it as a boy. And we know Thomas Edison read it as a boy because he came to the offices of the editors and told them when he was demonstrating his uh, invention of the phonograph for the first time. Having been around since 1845, I mean, Scientific American has been around since before airplanes, since before automobiles, since before x-rays, since before relativity, obviously. Uh, it has been around since the discovery of the electron. It has been around since before the germ theory of disease. It has been around for a very long time. What it has not been around longer than is stupidity. And that is something that at some level the editors and writers for Scientific American have always dealt with during that, uh, that very long history. And so I'm going to try to, to, to show you just a few highlights or lowlights, as the case may be, of some of Scientific American's uh, experience with that. The golden era of Scientific American's involvement with anything like skepticism was really back in the, uh, the late teens, 1920s. Um, because during this time, Scientific American was involved with several different projects uh, that, that were aimed at, at trying to debunk uh, various things that were of, of questionable scientific accuracy. One of them had to do with the whole area of, it looked uh, very critically at different areas of medical quackery. And to that end, this is maybe the one that they were probably most famous for. Um, how many of you have ever heard of the electronic reactions of Abrams? Not, not too many, probably. It's, it's these days, it's, it's not very well known. Take my word for it, however, that at the time, in the early 1920s, this was one of the major health fads sweeping the United States. It was uh, founded by Dr. Albert Abrams, who uh, came up with this, uh, this radiological approach 
to uh, diagnosis and ultimately treatment for disease. And, uh, and it was so, so compelling, it was so attractive to a lot of the United States that, uh, that it actually started to win over different practitioners and the AMA started to see it as a major threat. And they were mounting their own efforts to try to defeat the spread of the ERA. And, uh, and Scientific American was pulled in uh, to, to try to help debunk this as well. And so let's start by just talking about the ERA itself. Dr. Abrams seems to have hit about something around 1916 or so. He seems to have had this idea for, uh, for approaching diagnosis that involved a device that he called the dynamizer. This is the magic of how the ERA actually worked. The ER, with the ERA, the patient would uh, give a blood sample, or it could be a sample of pretty much anything. Indeed, over time, it started to become something so liberal that um, it went from just blood or other body fluids to the point where, uh, where Abrams was saying that you could take handwriting or just pictures of people, and that would be taken and would be inserted into the dynamizer. The dynamizer, then the wires from the dynamizer would then reach up and be attached to a healthy person who would have to orient themselves facing west because that was very important and they would hold these things here and they would attach the other leads as necessary and then the practitioner would come up and would palpate this, this control person's belly and listen and from the sounds he could determine what was wrong with the person who had given the blood sample. Because, you see, and this is going to be scientific, so some of you may want to, I, if you ask me to repeat this, I will, because it's very complicated. The electronic resonances associated with the diseased atoms would migrate up through the wires and would alter the electronic resonances of this person. And so... The, the practitioner could then listen to this and could determine it. Now, why it was he didn't just go and listen to the diseased person, I actually don't know. Even now, it's not really clear. But, uh, but this was great because Abrams would sell these boxes for like $400 to people who he were licensed to become new ERA practitioners. And the great thing was that the, part of the license was you were not for any reason allowed to open up the box and look inside. <laughs> Never could you look inside the box. And, and so, you know, he was selling this, and he was also then selling different sorts of seminars, teaching people how to use the devices. He was minting money. He made millions of dollars in the early 1920s, which was an appreciable sum of money. Oh, and this, by the way, he didn't just stop at diagnosis. He also moved on to the area of treatment. Because, of course, if you can use these resonances to diagnose what's wrong, by reversing the polarity using a device called the oscilloclast, which is kind of an inverted dynamizer, he could then actually, he could then actually correct the resonances and fix whatever was wrong with you. And it was great. I mean, after a while, he was just, he was just fixing pretty much anything with this. And he was even being uh, used to, uh, at some point, identify where people might be. I mean, Abrams at one point didn't stop short of actually taking a photograph of someone and using his dynamizer to uh, look at a map and figure out where that person might be. Can you imagine why the health authorities thought this might actually be worth stopping? So Scientific Americans stepped into this, and they undertook a nine-month 
investigation of the ERA in which they painstakingly, laboriously looked at all the claims for it and treated it exactly the way. It was a model of investigation because they basically said, all right, uh, they, the Abrams would not cooperate with this. Abrams wanted nothing to do with it. But Scientific American found one practitioner who was willing to cooperate. Dr. X, as he's referred to in the, uh, in, in the, in the magazine at the time, and Dr. X would consent to this. And so Dr. X would say, this is how ERA works. This is what you're supposed to do. And the panel that Scientific American put together would then say, all right, if that's the case, well, let's try this. So they started them with this, this great test in which they, uh, they gave uh, the uh, ERA practitioner, Dr. X, they gave him uh, a series of pure, pure germ cultures in test tubes. And basically said, so here it is. This is the purified causative agent of these. It's unlabeled. Just tell us what this is. Because if you can certainly diagnose that someone has, say, syphilis in their bodies from, from this process, from a blood sample, then if we give you pure germ culture, you should certainly be able to identify it that way. And Dr. X agreed that this was a good test. And he then applied that. And uh, the results were actually amazing because the results were that he didn't get any of them right. He got all of them wrong. In fact, he actually, it was, it, was, it was beyond what you would have imagined that just random chance you would have thought he would have gotten some of them right. Well, Dr. X did not take this lying down because he, he looked at it and he said, oh, well, here's the problem. You see, the labels that you've written this, some of them, some of them have red ink. Well, the redness of the label has, is interfering with the resonance. So they changed that and they kept doing this. They kept doing this over and over again, month after month. Every time they would test it and ERA would fail, then the, there was always some sort of excuse. And, uh, and they would correct for this and they would go back and do it again and again. And they eventually got to the point where they, they did somehow find a dynamizer and they just tore it open and looked inside. And they determined that the dynamizer inside was, as you would probably have imagined, a complete rat's nest of just wires that in some cases weren't connected to anything. They were just, it was just looked complicated if you even did peek inside. Some of them even didn't even connect to the external leads on this thing. So after nine months, Scientific American finally came to its own conclusion on all of this, and their verdict, and this was part of a much longer article denouncing all of this, but as you can see, it, it basically said, this committee finds that the claims advanced on behalf of the electronic reactions of Abrams uh, and of electronic practice in general are not substantiated, and it is our belief that they have no basis. In fact, in our opinion, the so-called electronic reactions do not occur, and the so-called electronic treatments are without value. It was a model example of the kind of thing I think we would all like to see when, when it's possible to try to, to take some sorts of medical quackery and subject it to good skeptical scrutiny all the way through. Scientific American was not always so successful in this regard. Um, because around the same time, another series of things that it was involved with was in um, looking at the spiritualism movement. Spiritualism, very, very big at the time. Lots of seances uh, were going on. And Scientific American undertook a, uh, a, a competition in which they basically they were promising uh, two $2,500 prizes 
to any, any medium, any spiritual medium, who could demonstrate certain things, being able to demonstrate a physical manifestation to the satisfaction of the investigating board or, or could otherwise, uh, um, I think, otherwise just show other sorts of proofs of this. And they went through for months after months, really years, looking at different mediums and, uh, and, and just you know, blowing them up. Um, Harry Houdini was part of the team that would travel around with Scientific American. I don't believe that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle was actually part of this because, of course, he was a little soft on the subject of spiritualism. But uh, he was involved with this uh, a lot as well. And uh, and there was one editor, uh, Malcolm C. Bird, who was the, the wonderfully named Malcolm C. Bird, who was the uh, managing editor of Scientific American at the time. And it's pretty clear when you read back through the accounts that they wrote of these these uh, their attempts to bust these different um, seances, that... Uh, Bird was kind of sympathetic to the spiritualist cause. It was pretty clear that he actually, in a lot of cases, really wanted to find a ghost in some of these. However, the the board that they put together, the panel they would send to these uh, seances, uh, never they you know they found what they found. They kept finding fraud after fraud. This all came to a head, however, when eventually came to look at the case. Of a of a a famous a famous spirit medium whose name was Mina Crandon, but um, but she was uh, generally referred to as Marjorie. This became sort of the downfall of Scientific American's uh, ghost busting crusade because uh, Marjorie Marjorie was you know she would have these uh, various meetings in which she would just seemingly uh, just would show amazing things and prove that she just had amazing contact with the spirit world, often through the medium of Walter. Walter, who was the, the male voice who would speak through her at these times. People were uh, really quite impressed with the job that she was doing. And apparently, um, now this is something I'm getting directly from, from Penn Jillette, um, himself. Because when I was telling this story back at the amazing meeting last year, uh, Penn Jillette was actually able to elaborate on this because he had, had met and had interviewed the granddaughter of, of uh, Mina Crandon. And uh, the granddaughter was able to confirm uh, certain things. Mina was kind of a looker, particularly by the times. And uh, apparently she would do a lot of her seances in the nude. (laughs) This may have sort of softened some of the skepticism uh, that was associated with this. And that may, in fact, have actually affected when, when Scientific American's investigative team showed up and actually started living in the Crandon's house in Boston. Malcolm Byrd is just transfixed with Mina. He just thinks she's great. When you read those accounts, he is strongly believing that he has finally, finally found the genuine article. And again, I can only cite what Penn Jillette told me about this, that apparently, according to... Uh, to uh, Marjorie's uh, granddaughter, yes, she really was sleeping with all of them, Um, which was convenient. Uh, Not for Scientific American, however, because Scientific American was well on its way towards forking over those $5,000 in prize money. But then, and it was prepared to do this while Harry Houdini, who was properly part of the team, was not there. He He was off on tour. 
And he heard about the fact, he was reading that it looked like Scientific American was closing in on doing this, and he so he rushed back so he could be there for another seance that involved all of them. And in the, he's there for the seance. He was very upset that Malcolm Byrd and the other members of the panel seemed ready to award this. And in the middle of, uh, of the seance, at one point, Harry Houdini leaps to his feet and points to some evidence of fakery and is denouncing her right in the middle of it. And Malcolm Byrd leaps to his feet and starts to vigorously defend Mina's honor, which led to what I'm... I get the impression was then a fist fight of some sort that broke out between Harry Houdini and Malcolm Byrd. And I, I think it is probably an excess of my own imagination that imagines it spilling out into the street somehow. <laughs> because I really can't imagine that in a fist fight between Harry Houdini and Malcolm Byrd that it would last very long. <laughs> However, it was enough to pretty much destroy uh, the ghost-busting attempts of Scientific American at that point. So it never actually gave out the $5,000 in prizes. Yay. By the way, some Scientific American content from the 19th century is available free via Project Gutenberg, which digitizes material that's off copyright. Just go to gutenberg.org. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, marathons are associated with a decreased risk of motor vehicle fatalities. Story two, an archaeological dig in Jordan finds that the oldest human-powered transportation appears to be something like a modern scooter made of two wheels with a wooden plank between them. Story three, Scientific American magazine once published an article saying that the telephone would never successfully replace the telegraph. And story four, statistically, when CEOs buy really big, expensive houses, the company's stock tends to go down. Time's up. Story one is true. Motor vehicle fatalities are reduced during marathons because the roads are closed. And according to research published in the British Medical Journal, more lives are saved on the roads than are lost to sudden cardiac events in the marathons. Story four is true. A study showed that stock performance is inversely related to the CEO's spending on their new home. The research appeared online at the Social Science Research Network in an abstract called Where Are the Shareholders' Mansions? CEOs' Home Purchases, Stock Sales, and Subsequent Company Performance. The authors write, Future company performance deteriorates when CEOs acquire extremely large or costly mansions and estates. We therefore interpret large home acquisitions as signals of CEO entrenchment which means that the CEO's job is probably safe regardless of company performance. And story three is true. Siam once did indeed publish an article saying that the telephone would never replace the telegraph. More on that in a moment. All of which means that story two about an ancient scooter being the oldest human-powered form of transportation is totally bogus because a recent paper in the Biological Journal of the Linnaean Society of London reports that the oldest human-powered transportation appears to be ice skating going back about 5,000 years. The skates were made of animal bones. The paper proposes that ice skating was probably invented in southern Finland and that the bone skates could have cut energy use, which means food requirements, by a full 10%. So in the spirit, so to speak, of John Rennie's look back at Siam history, Here's a wonderful editorial item on telephones and telegraphs that I stumbled on recently. 
while I was going through our ancient issues. It's actually a reprint of something that first appeared in the New York Sun, but we apparently liked it enough to run it in the issue of Scientific American dated May 26th, 1883. The title is Telegraph or Telephone. Despite the fact that recent experiments have demonstrated the possibility of telephoning over long circuits, it is to be doubted if the instrument will be used otherwise than locally. It is too sensitive to induction, to atmospheric electricity, and to grounds for circuits exceeding a few miles in length. The experiments have been tried under the best, not under the worst conditions. It is hardly possible for the telegraph business of two large cities to be conducted by telephone by the senders of messages themselves, for 500 wires might not suffice to prevent a block in busy hours, and merchants could not and would not wait. To operate telephones as the telegraph is now used would be equally impractical. Even were the instruments as little liable to disorder as the Morse, the greater danger of errors would weigh against them. There is no system of signals as clear as the present Morse code as interpreted by the sounder. Each letter of a word is given, and the ordinarily good operators seldom err in the record. By telephone, it is the sound of a word and not its vowels and consonants which the operator receives, and a mistake can easily happen even under the best conditions. It is to be doubted, too, if the rapidity of transmission by telephone, where the message had to be written down at the receiving station, would even approximate that of the Morse system. Proper names, scientific terms and phrases in a foreign language, etc., would have to be carefully spelled out, and even then would fall wide of accuracy. So they, they were not conceiving of two people actually talking to each other, even. They're thinking that somebody on the other end of your speech is going to be writing all this down and then handing a piece of paper to the recipient. And the uh, the little editorial concludes... All in all, there seems to be but little prospect of the present series of experiments resulting in a practical good, they're talking about the telephone now, however gratifying from a scientific standpoint. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com and check out numerous features at the new siam.com website, including the Year in Robots continuing discussion with the authors of the Big Solar Energy Proposal article featured on the podcast two weeks ago and the Doku Puzzle for Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American. I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs>